everyone. Morning uh, to the people in the back and uh, people over here. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. Um, those of you that are watching us online, uh, hopefully uh, this camera looks good. I think the angle look good, Matt. Yeah, good. Okay. All right. Lots of uh, technical stuff going on this morning, and it's been working flawlessly so far, so praise the Lord. Um, we are in the midst of uh, what has become, I guess, quite a lengthy series um, called Presence Formation Witness. We've been spending and camping uh, in formation now for quite a while looking at uh, what does it mean to live and to uh, be um, walking in the way of Jesus in our lives? What does it look like to follow him, to be his disciples, to be his apprentices? If you've been here, you've been hearing that word a lot, the, to be a Talmudine of Jesus. We're not, we're not interested in, and I, I, I have faith that this is where we're at, I, we are not interested in being pseudo-religious cultural Christians. Amen? I hope that's an amen, a hearty amen. I do not want to be a pseudo-cultural Christian I want to be a radical on fire follower of Jesus, and I want you to be there with me. Amen? There we go. All right. We're going to get really into it this morning. No. We want to we be passionate followers of Jesus who love him and abide in him and follow him. And so what we do and what we are not doing in our lives all have a profound effect on our formation. If, I know that's maybe like a broken record. You're like, Paul, you've been saying that a lot. Yes, I want you to get that into you. What you do and what you do not do all have an effect on what you are becoming. What are you, what are you being formed into in your life? That is such a profound question to ask in these days. What are you being shaped into? And if it's not to the way of Jesus, then it is going to be into something else or to someone else. And money, there's that word, and possessions have a significant impact on our love for God and formation to the way of Jesus. How we think, how we handle money has a direct impact on our spiritual lives. And so we focused last week a lot on generosity, how life in Christ calls us to excel, to abound, and to grow in generosity in our lives. And I loved that shoebox video because, again, it's just reminding us, like, how can you right now excel, abound, and grow in generosity? Well, there's one, one area right now. Get involved with shoebox, pack shoeboxes, give of yourselves. What, what can you do this year that you didn't do last year? You know, and when we talk about generosity, I, I can say that our family has experienced in great measure in this church over the years, amazing generosity. Like I was thinking about that this week, like years ago when Jess had to have abdominal surgery and it was going to cost thousands of dollars and we had thousands of dollars given or fundraised for us just to bless us. We, you know, simple things like we needed to borrow a tent earlier this summer and I put that out and I had like a bunch of people saying, hey, I got a tent, I got a tent. I'm like, wow, like Jess is like, do you see how many people were just like willing to step up? And then like my office right now, like, wow. Like I was like, I walked into my office, I got the unveiling this last week and I was like, like, to all of you, I'm going to personally thank some of you. Yep, I don't even know who was all involved. But if you were, like, thank you, because I, I have been thoroughly enjoying my office this week. It's been such a great thing to be in. And, and so it, it's been humbling 
And I'm sure that if you've been on the end of generosity in your lives, it's humbling to actually to be on the end of generosity. And, and I'm sure as well that the, many of you have experienced profound joy when you have given in your life. Like, like when I've given in my life, I love the joy that comes from giving. Like, yeah, exp- receiving is great. Giving is even better. But we want to look at one key aspect this morning that fuels generosity in our lives, and that is contentment. And so I want to talk about money, contentment, and godliness this morning. And to look at that, we're going to spend some time this morning in, the, in some words of Jesus, and then we're going to spend some time in some words that Paul wrote to Timothy that we have recorded. And they're in, we find them in Scripture, and I believe that they will resonate with us this morning. They certainly resonate with me. So if you have your Bibles, uh, you can turn to Matthew 6. Uh, Dwayne, at the end of last week, when he closed the service, he beat me to the punch. I was like, you're reading what I'm going to preach out of next week. But I'm like, that's all right. It was a good primer. So Matthew 6. I mean, I don't think, I'll say this, I don't think you can talk about money and possessions without talking at least about, like, what Jesus says here in Matthew 6 is so, so profound, Matthew 6, verses 19 to 24. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to just welcome you into this time. Father, we want to thank you these words. We want to thank you for the truth of these words that Jesus spoke and that resonate throughout all of history. Lord, and, we're, and we've seen the effects all throughout history when these words are either obeyed or they're not obeyed. And so, Lord, we want to be your Talmudin this morning. We want to be your apprentices who live and respond according to your truth and, put, and, and place it and, and have it functioning in our lives. And so we want to ask that you would do that. Holy Spirit, We invite you here this morning to speak to our hearts and open up our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. So these are obviously very striking words. And I want to start this morning by talking about the potential problem of money. It's it's only potential. Money can be a problem, but it may also, it doesn't have to be a problem. But it it was this truth that that Jesus spoke of here. It was this truth, really, that he was getting at when that rich young uh, ruler, the rich young man, came to him. We read of it in a few different accounts in the Gospels. And this guy that comes to him, he wants to know what he needs to do to to follow and to to really fulfill the law. And, And we see in this conversation that he's obsessed with earthly possessions. And Jesus was inviting him to something greater. He's inviting him to what he spoke of here, this heavenly treasure. Because Jesus knew that money and possessions were that young man's God. And Jesus knew, he's like, you can't serve God unless you dethrone that idol of money 
that's over your life. If you can't do that, you actually can't follow me. And the same is true for us. Now, I think perhaps we can miss here what we just read, that that Jesus actually wants us to have a treasure mentality. Like, treasure is not bad. He wants us to store up treasures. It's all about where are you storing up your treasures. This is actually what Jesus said here is all about our self-interest. And you go, well, isn't that selfish? Like, he's, isn't, well, no. Because Jesus wants us, God wants us, the Father, to live for his glory And God's glory is always, always, always to your good. Always. Jesus doesn't, he says, don't store up for yourself earthly treasures. Why? Is he he saying that because it's bad? Like they're bad? Like somehow everything earthly is bad? No. He's saying don't do that because actually they're not going to last. Like everything you have Wealth on this earth, it will always, always, always be lost. Paul Tripp says it this way. He says, little kingdom living is an endless search for earthly treasure and an unending focus on personal need. Grace calls you to a bigger kingdom. That that is why our view of eternity, your view of the bigger kingdom right now, and our hunger and thirst for it is so, so crucial. How you see eternity and what you're living for, that will has massive impact on your decisions on this earth. Matthew 13, 44. One verse. It's one verse here. Jesus says this. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, it says, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Jesus, he's announcing there the kingdom. He's inviting us into it, that we might live for it. That's what he came on this earth to do. I am here to announce my kingdom. I'm inviting you into it, and I'm calling you to live for this kingdom. Now, we could lament Like this guy found the treasure that represents the kingdom of heaven and he had to sell everything for it. Really? Like everything? Yes, but it gained him everything that mattered. Everything. And the phrase that's key in that that verse is in his joy. In his joy. He was full of joy because he recognized what he had found. This is actually about deferred gratification. It's the sacrifice now for what is to come. Now that's hard because our culture doesn't teach deferred gratification at all. That's what the kingdom of heaven is. Present joy comes from anticipating future joy. So this is where we might not like it, but the gospel is incredibly practical Because it asks us, how are we handling what we have been given? How are we handling our money? What do we believe money is for? For our security, for our comfort, for our pleasure, for our desires? That would be what everything around you tells you that your money is for. Now it's interesting, verses 22 and 23 sometimes can be taken outside of this. And talked about, about, you know, the lamp and, and the light and, and in the body. But it's actually, Jesus is speaking here about the eye is the lamp of the body. He's speaking about that in relation to money and possessions. 
where we place our treasure. The eye represents what captivates us and holds our affections. And Jesus contrasts light with darkness in, to, in relation to how we handle money. He's saying if it holds a place of worship in our lives, it invites darkness into us. That's sobering, sobering words. It actually connects to what Paul says to Timothy, which we'll look at yet. But the love of money is a danger that has far-reaching effects. Love for money always, always, always replaces love for God. Now, you can have money and use it to serve God, but we cannot serve both. Jesus isn't saying, like, it's simply wrong. What Jesus is saying is it's actually impossible. You can't do it. We love money when we keep it, when we hold it close, or we spend it on our countless things that we don't need. But radical giving can sanctify our desire for financial gain. I think that's so key. Radical giving sanctifies your desire for financial gain. So it's possible to actually want more, not so that we can become rich, but so that we can just give it away. Money can actually be used as this amazing conduit for God's grace to flow to people, like OCC and like countless other things that we can be involved with. Now, we're living in a culture increasingly being, that's becoming alienated from the gospel, like completely. And you might even say, well, actually, Paul, it's completely alienated from the gospel already. Yeah, maybe. You could maybe make that argument. Now, when, when we, if we recognize that, does that alarm us? Does that call us to prayer? I think is the first thing I would say. But this worldview that we're living in right now, it's completely opposed to the message of the gospel that we read in the word. So one aspect of this culture, and we are accustomed to this environment of materialism that we're living in, like a fish is to water. Like all of us are just, we are so accustomed to living in materialism and consumerism. It's all we've lived in for generations. Fish take water for granted, right? Like it's their world. Fish don't think there's anything different until they come out of it. And they're like, what in the world's happening? But likewise, we don't, like, we don't think about materialism. Materialism is like the air that we breathe. We don't see it for what it is. We don't realize it for how it might be causing us to actually drift from Jesus. When we, we traveled to Georgia a couple summers ago, and we were driving in the south, and we saw this vine that was growing on the side of the highway, like massive, beautiful vines. And it was everywhere. Like it would just take over entire hillsides. And we were like, we've never seen that before. Like what is that? And so it's called kudzu. And it's this Asian foreign vine that was introduced into the southern U.S. and it likes the climate. And the thing is about it is that that vine, it can't be stopped. They do not know how to stop this vine. So they like, they chop it back, they burn it, they do everything they can in the south to try and keep this vine at bay. But it's completely invasive as a species down there. And there's this Wall Street banker who was telling the story how he grew up in the south and he was speaking about his life down there and, and how as a Wall Street banker he had this obsession for the pursuit of money. That's not, I mean, that's a pretty normal story working on Wall Street, right? But then he met the Lord, 
And the Lord showed him very specifically that what, what materialism was like in his life. And he gave him a picture of the kudzu vine. Because he knew about that from the south. And he showed him, he said, this is what materialism is like. And he says, how do you get rid of that vine? You don't. You just keep whacking away at it. You have to keep whacking and whacking and whacking. And that's what materialism is like in our society. You have to keep whacking and whacking and whacking away at it because it is so invasive. And this is what this guy says. He said, I found that the only thing that breaks the hold of materialism on my life is giving, giving, giving. Giving wisely, giving smartly, giving spiritually, giving generously. All right, why don't you turn, let's, uh, we're going to look now at 1 Timothy. I'm going to transition to some words here that Paul said to Timothy. 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 to 10. I think very much these words are in alignment with what Jesus said here in Matthew 6. So, before I read it, the context that Paul's writing in here is for growth in desire of pursuit of godliness. He had said earlier to Timothy, he said, godliness is a value in every way. He said it holds value not just for this present life, but for the life to come. He says it's like becoming more like Jesus, being formed into his image. This thing of godliness is something that we are to pursue. And so that's the context now that he's coming back to here in these words. And he says this, verse 6, but godliness... With contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs or griefs. That's what that word means. So he's saying this to Timothy because there was those that were using godliness at the time as a means for gain. They were using it as a, a way to serve themselves, to get ahead, and Paul's saying, he flips it actually, he flips it around and he says, oh yeah, godliness is actually great gain. Like we want, there is gain to be had in godliness, but it's connected with contentment. That's the key. Now contentment, it's really interesting because at the time, that whole idea of being content was being used by a large group, a large amount of the population of the time where Paul's writing to talk about their commitment to being self-sufficient. I'm, I'm content when I can be self-sufficient. Is, is sort of, was, that was sort of the, the thinking of the day. Massive appeal at the time. So think about this. Paul in Philippians, same time, he's writing there from a jail cell. He's in prison. And circumstances not being ideal is an understatement when Paul's writing this. And he says, I've learned the secret, he says in Philippians 4. Now, that's another cultural play on words because there was a big thing about the secret societies at the time and you were invited into these sort of cult religious practices where you would learn the secret to contentment. And so Paul's using this and some people would, oh, he's saying, I've, I've learned the secret 
of how to be content in any and every circumstance. So he's saying, I've got it, guys. Like, I've got it. And then he says, I can do all things. Now, just pause there. You know that verse, I can do all things. This was the common mantra of the day where people would say, I can do all things. I'm content. I'm self-sufficient. I can do all things. So when Paul says that, people are like, oh, yeah. I can. And then he, but then he adds the words. What, what are the next words? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That is mind-blowing. He's saying, this is not about my self-sufficiency. This is about Christ's sufficiency. I can do all things, yes. When Christ is at the center, that is how I have contentment. It's all about Jesus. This is why godliness with contentment is such great gain. So Paul says there, verse 7, For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. So that this speaks to a truth, actually. Paul saying something that was passed down through generations. This was commonly known. We know this. Like, we come into the world. What do you have when you come into the world? You've got what? Nothing, right? When you leave this world, what do you have? Physically, you've got nothing. We come out of this world, come in, nothing, go out, nothing. Modern day would be like, he who dies with the most toys. Now, there's two responses to that, right? He who dies with the most toys wins. Oh, really? No, he who dies with the most toys still, sorry, has the most debt or still dies. You still die. Yeah, debt, that's right. That's a common mantra of the day. Interest rates are low, just buy. Okay, now this is not some fatalistic attitude, right, that I'm getting at. Rather, it's a very necessary reminder for us by, with a culture that's gripped with materialism and the pursuit of wealth. You leave this earth with nothing. So what is the Lord getting at here? The pursuit of riches, toys, pleasures can very easily come to define our lives. You know people like that. You probably all know someone like that. Their life is defined by the pursuit of pleasures, toys, and just stuff. They're going to die someday. Contentment is being satisfied with less because the ideology of apprentices of Jesus is different. It's different. We're called to have a very different outlook. We're content with basic needs being met. Now this brings up some potential differences of opinion right now. What, What are basic needs right now? That would be, right, because Paul's writing in a first century context, so what are basic needs? Many would say right now that internet is a basic need. In fact, some communities have said that. Internet is, no one has a basic need, now you must have it. All right, so what about Wi-Fi? Is that a basic need now? What about smartphones? Is that a basic need? Some people say, oh, I can't live without my smartphone. It's a basic need. Well, do you, do you know the, mod, the year that our modern world changed? Like, literally changed. If some of I told you this, don't, don't blurt it out. Some of you know the secret because I was talking about this. 2007 is going to be a year that goes down in infamy, infamy where our world changed. It is the year that Steve Jobs launched the iPhone into the world. And it has changed everything. 
Twitter was, came online that year. Facebook came online that year. The cloud, year one of the cloud was introduced. Uh, there's something else. Oh, yeah, the App Store was also launched in 2007. That was the year that changed our world. Most people now, 13 years later, 13 years, think about this, in, in the totality of life on this earth, in 13 years, people now think we can't live without a smartphone. Like, we're in serious trouble in some respects. I won't even get into how our, our concentration has dropped from 12 seconds to 8 seconds, and now we're below goldfish. Can ask me about that. It's serious. Like seriously, we're, our attention span was 12 seconds. We've now studies have shown we've dropped to eight seconds. That's serious. We don't have a lot to lose. Goldfish are at nine. Okay, where was I at? I got to get back on. Got to get back on point here. Okay, we got to ask: What is all this doing to us, and what's it doing to our kids? Because the needs to survive in the world, the modern context might look a little bit different. But the point in all this is to guard us against excess. Because what it's getting at here is it's getting at what is the trajectory of your life. Verse 9. It's really a contrast for us. It says, but those. So that, this puts the question before us, is this us? That's really what, what Paul's saying. Is this us? But those who desire to be rich. Okay, now, what does that mean? Because what, what are the criteria of who this includes? You might ask, like, like well, who is that? Jesus says, do not lay up for yourself treasures on this earth. Now, take into account that we are the rich in this world. Middle-class Canadians are in the top 1% of the world's wealth. Now, you might go, well, how is that possible? I don't own a million-dollar house. I don't drive a vehicle worth six figures. I don't go on, on, you know, massive, huge vacations every year. I don't have this or any of this or any of that. And you kind of have this, you know, you have this spreadsheet of this is what it means to be wealthy, and I don't have that, so I'm not wealthy. Well, those people are in an even, like, tiny, minute percentage of the world's wealth. They're, like, uber-rich. We're We're rich perspective for us is that the vast majority of Canadians are included in this when Paul's talking about this. So we're, we're engulfed in a culture of wealth that has a never-ending appetite for more. More, more, more. So the warning here that Paul's giving is very relevant for our lives. The desire for more. The thinking that we don't have enough. The goal of wealth that's rooted in selfish desires. And the subtle ploy of Satan. And I think he's masterfully trying to work this right now within, throughout the church. Is to consume our lives with the pursuit of that which will never, ever, ever, ever satisfy. It will keep us distracted and addicted. And all of us are susceptible Every single one of us are susceptible in some way to that. So what's at stake? Like, what, what, what's the big deal? What's at stake here? Well, contentment that isn't dependent on your possessions, your bank accounts, your social status, your image. Contentment that isn't propped up by a false security dependent on your wealth and comfort. Wouldn't that be awesome 
to have contentment that isn't connected to any of that, like it doesn't matter if that changes, you are content. The language used here to describe the danger surrounding the effect of wealth on our lives, it's sobering. Warnings of falling into temptation, into a snare. Many senseless and harmful desires that plunge us into ruin and destruction. It's spoken of as a craving that caused many people to wander from the face, piercing ourselves with many griefs. Like stabbing ourselves, self-inflicted wounds of grief. That's what the desire to be rich does. The Greek word plunge there that Paul used can also be translated drown. It brings spiritual death into our lives. Randy Alcorn says, the life described here should be utterly repulsive to any thinking person. It is the polar opposite to Jesus' promise of life in all fullness. Following the drive to get rich for the usual purposes and thereby loving money is not the good life. Paul says here, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It doesn't say, actually, that money is the root of all kinds of evil. Money in, in, in itself is not inherently evil. It's the way that money's used that can be evil. But the translation here actually is really, really important. And, and we, um, many translations, they put in this all kinds the literal Greek says that money is a root of all evils. That's it. It doesn't add in kinds. We actually should like take kinds out of our Bibles because it's actually not there. John Piper comments this. Why does the desire to be rich not just result in one desire for money, but many desires? Because the love of money is the root of vastly more than we usually think it is. It is the root of all evils that men do. The love of money is a danger that has far, far reaching effects. That's what Paul's getting here. Be on guard about the love of money. As Jesus said, you cannot serve God and money. But again, like I said before, radical giving can sanctify our desire for financial gain. So it's possible actually to want more so that we can become rich. Not so that we can be rich, but so that we can give it away. That's a radical way of looking at wealth. Money that can be used as a conduit for God's grace, as I said. Salwan Hughes says this. He says, remember this. You can't serve God in money, but you can serve God with money. Because money can be used for all sorts of amazing, good, wholesome, righteous things, right? Life-giving aid, helping the cause of justice, supporting churches, funding Bible translation, and the list goes on and on and on. Money can be used for great things. And used like this, the point Jesus is getting at, that is where you're storing up riches and treasures in heaven. You are investing in the greatest investment portfolio that you can ever, ever, ever invest in. It's the greatest return. That's what we're meant to see here. So some of you might know the story of how Jess and I, we were on an airplane a few years ago. 
and we met a guy um, who happened to be sitting beside us. He was the president of a, a missions organization at the time that was sort of small, but getting, getting their feet and getting on the ground in the Middle East. And we just, we loved his heart, and, uh, and God sort of drew us into the work they were doing. And since then, that organization, Frontier Alliance International, has just seen amazing, huge growth. Like what they're doing right now is just like, I'm, I'm just in awe of how God has used them in the Middle East and continues to grow them. But we really felt like the Lord was in that encounter when we, when we were there on the plane. And we felt the Lord call us to support them above and beyond our tithe. The Lord said, I want you to support them. And so the, the Lord gave me a monthly number in U.S. dollars because that's how we have to fund them. And he gave me a number, and I'm like, oh, I don't like that number converted to Canadian. But whatever, and then now exchange took a dive. And we don't get any tax receipts because it's, you know, it's an American charity. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because we feel connected to the work. And every time I read about what they're doing, and I see how they're, they're, in, they're reaching people in the Middle East, I'm like, we have a part in that. Like, we have a part. We're sowing in the gospel right now in the Middle East. Do I want to go to the Middle East? Oh, yeah. Like, I really would like to go to the Middle East. Like, if God opens up a door, I'm going there someday. Like, I'm not saying I'm moving there, but I'm going there. And, but it's like, but in the interim, we're sowing into the work of the kingdom. I don't even know what it's doing, our money. I have no idea, and it doesn't matter. In eternity, though, I'm going to find out what that money has done. That's amazing. So now Paul, he's speaking here of contentment in relation to godliness. That the pursuit and the desire for godliness in our lives is, he says, it's great gain. Like, as he said previously, he's like, look, godliness is of value in every way, he says to Timothy. Like, not just some ways, every way. Every single way that you can imagine godliness is gain in your life, believe it. It's just, it does amazing things, both in this life and the life to come. So I want to talk about the pursuit of godliness here to end. Godliness is connected here. Paul connects it to contentment. The desire for riches, having our treasures set on money and possessions promises to lead us, Paul says, into great discontentment. If you want to set your hope on money and possessions and what this earth has to offer, you can be sure you're going to have discontentment in your life. Leads our hearts away from God. It's tragic beyond comprehension, actually, for people. So how how do we pursue contentment alongside godliness is the question. And 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 19 gives us the answers, a few verses down. I'm not going to read it all. You can go to it. But the first is, he says, to set our hope in God. Paul says, set your hope in God, not on the certainty of riches. Right? We can be doing great. We can be feeling comfortable. And suddenly, Different circumstances can affect us financially. A bunch of different stuff can come at you, and you can feel like you can throw you into a state of chaos and real worry. Any of you ever experienced that? I have, where all of a sudden a bunch of stuff comes at you financially, and you feel yourself being pulled and sucked into anxiety and worry over money. In these times, it's in those times actually where our confidence and our tr- where our, our trust reside, it's exposed. 
God sometimes will use those situations actually to say, your, your confidence and your trust is not to be in that. So that's the first thing. Set our hope in God, not on the certainty of riches. Number two, we are to do good. Be rich in good works. And he's contrasting that as opposed to the pursuit of finances. Be rich in good works. Be generous. Be ready to share. You know, I, I love Paul in Philippians 4. There was that other part where he talks about being content. And he's talking to the Philippians about the way that they've supported him and the way that they've, like, financially they supported him. And he talks about our, how our generosity, our financial sacrifices are a fragrant offering and pleasing to God, he says. Like they bring him glory. Like how great is that? That you know when you give, when you release, when you sacrifice, when you let go, that it's a fragrant offering, sacrifice to the Lord. Again, that's the sort of thing. When you get that, when you get that, and it influences your giving, it changes everything. When you give, you don't feel this like, oh, do I have to let that go? No. Bless. Give. Let go. Got to change my budget. Have to make do with less. Yes, I'm letting go for the kingdom. I'm storing up treasures in heaven. And that's the promise. 1 Timothy 6.19 Store up treasures as a good foundation for the future to take hold of that which is truly life. That is the promise. That when when we let go, we sacrifice, we give, we take hold of that which is truly life. So I was to like say, okay, what's, what's the implication of all this this morning? What's the implication of this in our lives? How we handle our finances matters as it pertains to following the way of Jesus and living for the expansion of his kingdom. It matters. How you handle your finances absolutely matters. So I want to leave us with some application for this week, and I want to uh, give it to you. You can take this away to process and put before the Lord. I've got five questions. I'm throwing two slides. Um, number one, are there things or the pursuit of things in my life that are holding the treasure of my heart? How do I make changes in my life? Number two, do I struggle with fear of not having enough in my life? Does this cause me to find financial generosity hard? I, I can say I've, I've been there. I'm still there at times. So I, I'm definitely, I can relate to that. that that's something I've got to work through. Have money and possessions become my idol? Are material assets competing with Jesus for lordship in my life? Number four, am I listening to the Holy Spirit when it comes to what my heart holds as treasure? If I don't choose to give now, am I in danger of my heart getting further wrapped up in earthly treasures rather than heavenly treasures? And number five, what are the practical steps for my life to pursue godliness and contentment? That's something to just put before the Holy Spirit and say, Holy Spirit, what are the practical steps in my life to pursue and grow in this? So I want to leave those for you. We'll, we'll have those. We'll share those this week um, on social media for those of you that want those. But um, yeah, let's, let's pray and then we'll, uh, then we'll worship to close. Jesus, I want to thank you again for that promise that we read of in Scripture where Paul says that 
really, I'm content because I, it's all about you. It's all about sufficiency in Christ. It's all about your strength. Jesus, it's, it's all for you. It's about you. It's back to you. Everything is about you. It all revolves around your glory. And it's, it's about good in our lives. And so we want to receive that this morning, Jesus, that money and contentment and godliness, it's about being centered in you and on you, following your way, being shaped and formed into your likeness. And you do incredible things in our lives. And Lord, I'm expectant for how you're going to continue to work and move in our lives as we posture our hearts towards generosity and contentment. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for what you're doing Jesus, we recognize that there's areas where we find this hard, we find this difficult, we deal with fear, we deal with anxiety, we deal with the desire to hold on to things. Lord, help us. Jesus, help us where we struggle with that. I know I struggle with that, Lord, and I need your help. Holy Spirit, would you come and would you work amongst us? In Jesus' name, amen.